We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We began a, a series two weeks ago with the topic of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord and through him God is reconciling all things and making all things new. And at the center of that, of course, is the work of God in Christ in the death and resurrection of his son that enables the forgiveness of sins and salvation to come about, this reconciliation with God. And then last week we thought about what is our aim? What are we actually called to when we respond to the gospel in faith? And the aim is that we are to become like Jesus, as followers or apprentices of Jesus, this new way of life that we've been brought into, our aim is to grow to be more and more like him in our lives. And today we're going to begin to think about a, a way of considering this scripturally given uh, guidance from God for how we grow up in this way, um, this, this way of, of Christ. And over the next four weeks, we're going to explore this model a method that's rooted in the scriptures about how we grow in Jesus. Um, this isn't the only model or method. This isn't the only way to think about the Christian life. It's not that it, it doesn't have room for improvement. I'm sure that it does, but I trust it's a helpful way for us to conceive of the, of the task of the Christian life or the, the, this growth into Christ-likeness. And this method or this strategy that we're going to consider is that we become more and more like Jesus as we engage in the dimensions of the Christian life that God communicates to us through his word of worship, community, mission, and catechesis, or instruction, deepening. We can think of these as four trajectories, if you will, in the Christian life. Worship is an upward trajectory of engagement with God. Community is an inward trajectory or engagement with one another. Mission is an outward trajectory or an engagement with the world and our neighbors. And then catechesis is a deepening trajectory, down and deep, which is engagement with God's word and his gospel and growing in our understanding of the implications of these things for our lives. Together, these have a vertical axis, really, which is primarily about loving God. So that's worship, as we'll consider today, and catechesis or deepening in the word of God. And then there's a horizontal axis as well, which is about loving our neighbor. Community is about loving our neighbor within the, the, the body of Christ. And mission is about loving our neighbor out there, outside of the body of Christ, that we're called to love and to serve. So you have this vertical axis and a horizontal axis, which, of course, create a cross, which is meant to communicate the cross-shaped way of life. We talked last week about becoming like Jesus means walking on the way of the cross or walking on the way of love. And so this is just a way of thinking about that way that we've been called to as disciples of Jesus and how we take these up. We are to take them up together, all four of them, because if we just take up one or two, we might become like a caricature, you know, having a really large head but a small heart and no hands. Uh, so these four go together to produce the kind of work in us of, of maturing and growing in Jesus that we long for so that we might come to greater life. Because as we talked about last week, the way of the cross, the way of love, paradoxically, is actually the way to become fully alive. It's the way that God has invited us into true life. So today we start these four weeks with worship. 
And to examine this, we will look at John 4, at this encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, a familiar passage. I invite you to open up to John 4 with me. Though we'll also secondarily think about this through the lens of what Isaiah encounters in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6. First thing, just by way of introduction, that I want to take from John 4 is actually in verses 23 and 24. The hour is coming, Jesus says to this woman, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So if you could ask the question, what is the creator of the universe longing for from you? Which is probably an important question for us to ask. What does God ultimately desire from you and from me? This text actually gives us the answer to that question. He longs for you to worship him. He is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. Now you might say, well, isn't this kind of self-centered of God that he wants people to worship him? I've heard that response, and certainly if it were you and I saying, I want people to worship me, that would be a problem. We are not worthy of worship. But when God sets out his designs that his creatures would worship him, this is not selfish or self-centered. This is merely a reflection of truth and reality. God is worthy as eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, perfectly good and loving. God is worthy, unlike anything in the created order, of our worship. And we were designed, we were created to worship him such that when God is being rightly worshipped by his creation, the world is put in its right ordering and it leads to flourishing. So for God to desire you to worship him is actually for God to desire you to know the fullness of life and blessing that come from things reflecting truth and reality. This is not selfish. It is right and good and true that God seeks his own glory in people who would worship him and magnify his name. It sets the, it sets the world right. In fact, God desires this. He desires the flourishing that comes from this so much that he sent his son into the world to die on a cross on our behalf to open up a way and create a way for us to worship him. This is what the apostolic ministry of the church is about, the proclamation of the gospel. It is fundamentally to produce worshipers who will worship the Father in spirit and truth. John Piper says, mission exists because worship does not. Which I think is helpful in thinking about the work that we've been called to. It is to create worshipers who will worship the Father. Two main parts of this, and the first is a little different than normally what I do, but we're going to spend the first section here just thinking about worship. What is it, and how does the scripture speak about it from a kind of broad lens? And then second, we'll come back and think about what fuels this biblical vision of worship and, and do so in engaging the story of the Samaritan woman and Isaiah the prophet in chapter 6. So the first thing is just what is worship when we think about this question? Well, both the Old and New Testaments use a word for worship that means essentially to bow down. And that basic sense is important. It is putting oneself low and putting God high. These two Testaments of the Scriptures also use words that imply uh, worship as reverential homage or venerating someone. Worship is putting God first 
And as a result, it entails coming to him, living before him, engaging with him according to his terms. In his 2006 book on worship, Recalling the Hope of Glory, Alan Ross writes, quote, to bow down before someone, a king or God, is to show adoration, devotion, submission, and service, end quote. To worship God is to respond rightly to God's self-revelation, which he gives us in his word and in his works in the world, and to respond through adoration, service, submission, and devotion. David Peterson, in his 2014 book called Engaging God, a Biblical Theology of Worship, says this about worship, quote, the worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. It is this appropriate response that God alone has made possible to the revelation of God that defines worship through submission, service, devotion, and adoration. So scripture communicates about this reality of worship in what I would call both a broad and a narrow sense. And I want us to understand these two senses of the word worship in scripture. First, on the broad, in the broad sense, worship encompasses one's entire life. All that we do and say is done and said, isn't it? In response to God and what he has made known about himself, in response to his provision and his love. So, perhaps paradigmatically on the broad sense of worship, the text we would turn to is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are living sacrifices, wholly consecrated over to God in every dimension of our lives and living out in response to his grace and mercy a relationship with him and engagement with his presence in an ongoing sense. William Barclay, a mid-20th century New Testament scholar and commentator, wrote this. He said, quote, A man may say, I am going to church to worship God, but he should also be able to say, I am going to the factory, the shop, the office, the school, the garage, the locomotive shed, the mine, the shipyard, the field, the buyer, the garden, to worship God, end quote. In other words, all of life is engagement with God. Everything that you and I do, whether uh, wherever it may occur, occurs in his presence and in a response to his grace and mercy. So this is the broad sense of worship. All of life can be summed up as a response of worship to the living God. Devotion, service, submission, adoration to him. And yet, then, there is a narrower sense, which is actually the more frequent sense with, in which scripture speaks about the worship of God. Describing specific usually corporate, sometimes individual, but usually corporate activities of devotion and adoration that incorporate various rites and rituals in the people of God. For example, think about the study we did on the book of Leviticus. The sacrifices, the priests, the tabernacle, all of these were given to the people of God in order that they might rightly respond to God's revelation and dwelling in their, in their midst. And all of this would have been seen as their worship that they came together to do. All of their sacrifices, their weekly 
uh, patterns uh, on the Sabbath, which was at the center of their life, the annual rhythms that we looked at, all of these are right responses, corporate actions that they do in response to the presence of the living God as acts of worship or devotion to him. When we move then thinking about this from the lens of the New Testament, just an example in the book of Acts, when Paul is defending himself to Felix, the, the Roman leader over Palestine at the time, he says this, he says, Felix, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Now, Paul doesn't mean that he wasn't worshiping before 12 days, the 12 days before he went to Jerusalem. But what he means is he had gone to Jerusalem to gather with the people of God to engage in those specific acts of religious service and devotion, which are rightly described as worship that God calls forth from his people. So worship can refer more narrowly to these specific acts of the gathered body of believers as they engage together in responding to God's words and works by the means that he has provided according to what he has declared. So the earliest church, for example, in Acts chapter 2, remember they have practices that they're engaging in a response to God's revelation. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. We could see these as, as a kind of God-inspired, directed response of worship of the earliest church to what God had revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. We carry on that reality to this day when we gather together with the people of God in order to, in obedience to God's word, remember in Hebrews 10, God encourages us not to forsake the habit of meeting together as some have done, but to gather together to engage in the various acts that God's word calls forth from his people that we describe as corporate worship, what we're doing here together. For example, here are things that God evokes from us as a response, these acts of devotion that we do when we gather together. Sacrifice, that was a central one. And you might say, well, we don't do that in the New Covenant. And you're right, we don't. There was one great sacrifice that fulfilled all the system of sacrifice that we looked at in Leviticus, which was, of course, the sacrifice of God's Son. But in, as we gather, we don't participate. We don't, uh, that sacrifice is once for all completed on the cross. We gather and we remember that sacrifice. We look back and we celebrate what God has done. We also, though, with a kind of sacrifice with a little s, we offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. And we generally take up an offering as an act of, it's an historic act of Christian worship, which is a sacrifice of our resources in the, in the worship of God. So that continues to be a dimension of what God calls forth from his people. There's proclamation. The word of God is central to the worship of his people. The covenant king, as he summons us to worship him, speaks to us and proclaims the truth to us and his guidance and direction and his glory to us. There's confession. There's prayer. There's praise. There's celebration. And all of these acts that we do when we gather together are intended to renew us in our covenant relationship with our king. They renew us as his covenant people. These gatherings, corporate gatherings of worship, are God-centered. Thus, they are Christ-centered. God is at the center of what we do when we gather. They are word-centered. God's word and proclamation. We, we proclaim God's word. We read God's word. We pray God's word. We sing God's word when we gather together. These hymns that we sing, they're a reflection of the word of God. It's spirit-inspired. 
Our worship is animated by the Holy Spirit. This worship gathering is unitive. It draws us together as one body as we gather in the presence of God. It's formative. It shapes us as, as disciples of Jesus. It's expressive. It expresses our, our longing and heart for God in, as, we, as we overflow in praise and thanksgiving. And it's participatory. We aren't passive consumers as we gather in corporate worship. We are active participants in the worship of the holy God of glory as we gather. And I will say, and now just thinking about these corporate gatherings, which the Bible refers to as worship, when we engage in this worship in a full-throated manner, and I, I borrow this from Scott Arbiter, the pre former president of World Relief. He was with us last May, and after he worshiped with us three times that Sunday, he said to me, Mark, Park Street has full-throated worship, and I was encouraged by that. Just a, a wholehearted, all of us coming to the table to give God praise. But when we do this in a full-throated manner, worship, the gathering of God's people, becomes a meeting place between heaven and earth. Our worship unites with the heavenly worship in the heavenly throne room that we get a glimpse of beautifully in Revelation 4 and 5, where the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the myriads of myriads of angels and all of creation are united in praising the Father and the Son through the Spirit. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. One of you commented to me after a service last fall, the veil between heaven and earth is thin in this place. And I was encouraged by that. It's true, isn't it? We know this, that when we gather and we bring our little tributaries into one great river in obedience to God, gathering together, that there is something holy and powerful and heavenly about the worship of God's people because it's joining with the worship that's going on in the heavenly realm for all eternity. And this kind of meeting place of heaven and earth can have an evangelistic impact as well when those who gather with us who maybe don't yet believe in Jesus can say, surely God is in this place. 1 Corinthians 14. God is the primary actor in this narrower sense of worship. Uh, Hughes Oliphant Old in his 2002 book on worship describes worship as, quote, the work of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, to the glory of the Father. This is worship in spirit and truth. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says this to the woman, the right way of hearing this in spirit is in the Holy Spirit, the one who is going to come and animate the church. And truth, well, who is the truth? Jesus. He'll later say in John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in spirit and truth is in the Holy Spirit and in Christ or in the body of Christ. This is where worship will genuinely occur, this worship that the Father seeks. And because God is at work in our corporate worship, we are formed and renewed and rerooted in the reality of his love for us. And our identity as we gather week after week as his children is strengthened. And we are recommissioned to go out into his world as his sons and daughters to live a life of worship in the broader sense, day in and day out, to the glory of his name. So this is the ideal. Worship in a broad sense, all of life, is to be grounded in, supported by, even shaped by worship in the narrow sense. That is what we do when we gather here in these acts of devotion and service to the Lord in praise and prayer and proclamation. These things are to shape the way in which we engage with God throughout the week and inform that. On the flip side, what we do throughout the week is to reflect what we do here. And actually, 
Scripture teaches us that God has no interest in our worship in a narrow sense if there is not also worship in the broader sense. Their hearts, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isaiah 58, this is the fast that I choose. Psalm 50, look, I don't need your burnt offerings and sacrifices. What I really need from you is a, a life that listens to my word and obeys it. God is not mocked by worship that takes place when his people gather together if it is not matched by a life of covenant fidelity in the day-to-day -day trenches of our lives. So worship in a broad sense and in a narrow sense scripturally work together to reinforce the life of God's people. That is at least the ideal, these things working together. But I want to suggest to you, and perhaps this has been your experience as well, is oftentimes worship, especially in this narrow sense, which again is the dominant sense we get of it in Scripture, it can become mundane, humdrum, lose its oomph, its power, its zeal, its warmth. Like the church in Laodicea, we might say that oftentimes the church's worship becomes neither hot nor cold, but just lukewarm. And when I say this, I want to be clear what I don't mean. I don't mean that we need to feel certain things each time that we gather together. Too much of the church today sees a worship service as a means of producing, often through means like music or lights or stories or a mixture of all of these, a certain kind of emotional experience. Now, I want, to, I want you to hear me clearly. I don't mean for a moment to deny the, central, the, the importance of emotions in our relationship to God and in our worship of the Holy Lord of glory by any means. I would hasten to add, when I say that, that our emotions are unreliable as well. Yet, too much of Christian worship in today's world mimics the culture's paths of emotional manipulation that can occur in places like rock concerts and political rallies. And down that path, I submit, lies danger and discouragement and disillusionment and exhaustion. That is not God's intention for his people in worship. How disheartening it is when we come to gather with God's people if we're operating with a very limited understanding of what worship is when those feelings don't come as we wish they would. It is far too narrow of a goal for the church to have, for a range, the range of people and the range of emotions that exist even now within this room. Some of us are here this morning and we are deeply afraid. Others of us are elated. Some of us are grieving. Others overflowing with happiness because of good events that happened in your life this last week. Some of you are crushed this morning and overwhelmed, perhaps deeply grieving. Others are confident, feeling like the world is yours for the taking. Worship is not meant to take all of you and to squeeze you into having a similar feeling or reaction. Rather, worship is meant to lead all of us as the people of God, whatever it is that you were feeling when you walked in and whatever it is that you may be feeling right now, it is to lead us into the very presence of the Holy Lord of glory, that we might take our part in the great chorus around the heavenly throne that is crying out to our Creator and our Redeemer, joining our voices with those voices that are going on perpetually in the heavenly realm, that have been going on in the history of God's people long ago from the time of Abraham up to the present day, 
and joining our voices in that chorus, allowing this holy God to meet us and to minister to us, to comfort some of us, other, others of us to convict or maybe to afflict, to grow us, to address us, to encourage us, to renew us in this covenant relationship that he has brought us into by his grace through his son Jesus. As we share together in the corporate actions prescribed in his word of adoring him and praising him, of confessing our sins to him, of hearing from his word, of praising him and praying to him and sharing together in his table. This is what it means to come together and to join our voices in worship, to gather for the worship of God's people. So secondly, and more briefly, to think about then what is it that fuels worship in this narrow sense and because it fuels it in the narrow sense of the gathered actions of God's people, fuels worship in the broad sense as well. And here I want us to come back to our biblical texts, these specific ones, and to see actually three, three realities which we must have a clear vision of that fuel this kind of worship. And then finally, a common response. All of these are present in Jesus' encounter with this woman at the well and also in Isaiah's encounter with the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. Again, as with last week when Bartimaeus had to see in order to follow, we also need to see in order to rightly worship and for our, our worship to be fueled rightly by God. So the first thing that we need to see, uh, and this is the foundation, uh, without this really worship can't happen, it is a vision of God and his glory. The majesty of God, the transcendence of God, the otherness of God. When the woman runs back to town, her excitement is centered around the manifestation of Jesus' power that was displayed in her encounter with him. She says in verse 29 of John 4, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. True worship arises out of a vision of the glory and power and majesty of God. Jesus gives this woman just a glimpse of that in his encounter with her by revealing her life to her that he only knew through his miraculous knowledge. But there is so much more. Throughout scripture and history, through the acts of creation and redemption, God is manifesting his glory among us. And there are times in our lives, through visions perhaps, through specific encounters with God, through miracles, through the cross and resurrection, this is of course chiefly through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, when the Holy Lord of glory is made manifest. By God's grace, Isaiah is privileged to have this glimpse into the glory of God in Isaiah 6. He peers into the heavenly throne room. He sees the Lord seated on the throne in power and glory, being worshipped by the heavenly creatures who are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is great. The triune God is great and marvelous and wonderful and vast and powerful and in some ways even uh, unknowable in, that in his greatness. Of course, he's knowable reliably through what he's revealed, but he has not revealed everything of himself to us, only what we need. And worship is fueled by a vision of God in his transcendence and glory and holiness. And it is the recognition that God alone is the most weighty, important person and presence and being in the world. 
that we are to deal with and this that fuels our lives of worship and our corporate gatherings of worship. When you come into this space week after week as the people of God, I would long for you as you cross the threshold into this room to cast your eyes upon the Lord of glory. For it is in his presence that we gather. And it is with a vision of his magnitude and power and might that we gather. And it is this that renders our worship infused with life and power and vitality and transcendence and a sense of heaven because we've gathered in the presence of one who is so glorious. Worship is fueled by a vision of God and his glory. Second, though, it's fueled by a vision at the same time, simultaneously, of our shortcoming and our need. Because when we, as broken vessels, jars of clay, breaths here one day and gone the next, when we encounter this God, we come face to face with the reality of our own distortion, idolatry, and clinging to other things for life. In Luke chapter 5, when Peter encounters the glory of Jesus in the miraculous catch of fish, and Jesus comes, or they're in the boat, the fish are being brought in, what does Peter say to Jesus? He says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When Isaiah encounters the vision of the Lord in the heavenly throne room in Isaiah 6, what does he say? He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we gather in the presence of one so glorious and so mighty and so awesome, our sin and shortcomings become readily apparent, and we are undone. We fall short And that is why confession of sin is a central part of historic Christian worship. We cannot come into the presence of the Holy Lord and gaze upon his beauty without without knowing, acknowledging, confessing our ways of falling short. We see this in the encounter with the woman, don't we? When she encounters Jesus and he says to her, go call your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. She's still concealing. And then Jesus says to her, you're right. In saying that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. She was flailing, seeking for life in all kinds of ways that she knew were not ultimately going to deliver. We don't know her circumstances exactly, but clearly there was some thirsting there going on that she was seeking to fill through men in her life. And Jesus exposes her deeds, and he puts this in the wider frame that all of this unholiness and all of this sin is a manifestation in all of our lives, that we are thirsty and we are trying to quench our thirst with things that don't satisfy. That is effectively what sin is. You're worshiping, but you're worshiping gods who cannot deliver and cannot save. The only thing Jesus says to this woman, the only thing that will quench your thirst, the only thing that will cause you not to thirst again is me, he says. I am the gift of God. If only you knew it, you would ask me for living water, and I would give it to you, and you would take a drink of it, and you would never thirst again. This is Jesus' offer to her and offer to us. So we need to see not only the vision of God's glory, but a vision of our shortcoming and sin. And then third, these two kind of blend together in this third point. We need to see clearly that he has made a way. And this fuels all of true worship. This is the entire point of John chapter 4. It's the entire point of the gospel according to John. 
In that day, this Samaritan woman had no business talking with Jesus, a Jewish man at this well. She had no business being alone with him, no business engaging with him. And Jesus, what does he do? He crosses barrier after barrier after barrier to engage her, to talk with her, to teach her, to offer himself to her, to make her a true worshiper that she might have genuine life. And it's true for us as well. In our sin, we have no business interacting with, with or being in relationship with the Holy Lord of glory. Yet God in his grace has made a way. And this has always been the case. Isaiah knew this, didn't he? When he encounters the glory of God and he falls down, God would make a way. He gives him the way of the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices in the old covenant. For Isaiah, he sends an angel with a burning coal to touch his lips and to provide atonement for his uncleanliness. For this woman, he crosses barriers to meet her of gender and ethnicity, of social custom, and he reveals himself to her as the one that they are waiting for, the Messiah. I, he says in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. And for all of us, God has made a way for us to be in relationship with him through his son, entering into the mess, taking upon himself our sin, dying on our behalf and defeating evil at the cross, bringing about forgiveness and inviting us to be the cleansed people who can walk in covenant relationship with him all of our days as his sons and daughters, privileged children of our heavenly father. Celebration then is always at the heart of Christian worship. We're not just overwhelmed with the glory of God, though we must see this clearly in his character and his works, and this continues to fuel our praise. We're not just undone by the reality of our sin, though we must never forget this, knowing the depth of our need and dependence always and forever. But in light of these, these two things, God's glory and our sin, which should never mix, we should be overwhelmed, and I say overjoyed perhaps, by the glory of the God who has crossed every barrier to enable sinners like us to be in the presence of a holy God like him, to be in a covenant with him, and to offer our lives to him as sacrifices of praise. To be satisfied, no longer thirsty, alive, fruitful. At our house in Jamaica Plain, we for a few years had garden beds that we had set up out, on, out of our house, and uh, we were very much not good gardeners, I will say. It's not our strength or forte. We often had friends who would come and garden our garden for us. But our garden flourished year after year after year, and it was for one simple reason. And if you're a gardener, you know what it was. It was the sun. Our garden beds were on the south side and no obstruction, and they had sunlight day in and day out and day in and day out. And so they grew to be flourishing, healthy, producing, garden plants. In a similar way, we were created to bask in the sunshine of the glory of God as people who worship him. And God's great mercy and grace is that he has made a way to clear away the clouds of sin, to open a pathway for the sunlight of his glory to shine directly down upon us that we might be radiating and basking and receiving the warmth and nutrients and life that God alone can give that we might in response to God grow into flourishing oak trees of righteousness to use a biblical uh, image that are bearing fruit to his glory, honor, and praise. This is what worship is. It is basking in the presence of of the Holy Lord of glory, which we do all week long, but we do in a special way in obedience to him as we gather together in this narrow sense of, that we call corporate worship. And this worship produces a common response. We see it in the woman and we see it in Isaiah, but the woman, she goes back to town, remember? 
And she starts to speak of her encounter with Jesus. Come and see this man who, who told me everything that I ever did. She was sh so ashamed of her past before she met Jesus that she went to the well at midday because she didn't want to confront anybody with her lifestyle. Now, having met Jesus, having been received and embraced by him, she goes back to the town and actually draws attention to her past by saying, this man told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the one? And people come out and they spend time with him and many more believe in him and come to life. Isaiah, what does he do? There is this question in verse 8, whom shall we send for us? Who will go, who, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah's response, remember, having been cleansed, having met God in his glory, here I am. Send me. And then he goes on his vocation of his prophetic ministry to the people of God and to the nations. We too, when we encounter the Holy Lord of glory, whose glory is so great in the midst of sin that is so deep, yet has provided a way through his Son for us to bask in the radiance of his presence, we too are renewed week after week after week as his people, forgiven, in right standing now with him, empowered by his Spirit to go out and live a life of covenant fidelity in the world to which he has sent us, a life of worship that would, that would produce Glory and honor and praise to his holy name. The Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. And he has made a way for us to do so. Thanks be to God. Our worship is entirely a response to God's provision of a way. And it is therefore a celebration of this God's provision. A praise of his amazing character and work. A yielding to his will and a hoping in his return that fuels our lives of worship throughout the week. This is something that we need corporately to gather as his people. To receive the radiance of his light. And to be sent out again as those who are bearing fruit in every good work as disciples of his son. This is our vocation. Our covenant blessing is to be a worshiping people. What does God want from you? He wants you to worship him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this gift of worship. What a gift it is. And Lord, we thank you that you have been gracious not to consume us in our sin but to consume your son that we might be free and to have life. God, we pray that the worship of your people at Park Street Church and in all the churches around the city and really around the world that declare your gospel, that believe in you, that trust in your word, that our worship would be transcendent and glorious, connecting us, Lord, to you, empowering us, strengthening us, nourishing us. Lord, we worship because you are worthy and we thank you that you use this worship to form your life more deeply in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.